This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Australovenator. We have a bunch of dinosaur news. And we'd like to give a big thank you to our Stegosaurus patrons, Scotty, Jackson, Megan Dixon, and Eric Keller. Yay, thank you. And if you'd like to join our growing community on Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash I Know Dino. And jumping into the news, this time I'm first... Yeah, it's weird. I don't like it. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) There's an announcement came out of Argentina where scientists announced the discovery of 70 million year old dinosaur eggs found in Patagonia in a site called Aca Mahuevo. The local cultural heritage director, Claudia de la Negra, made the announcement and said that dinosaur eggs were found in nests along with the remains of animals that ate them. These eggs may provide insight into the development stages of some of the biggest dinosaurs. So pretty exciting. There wasn't too much I could find about this since it's just an announcement, but we'll keep an eye out for more details. It sounds like animals eating titanosaur eggs, given that it's in Argentina, and she said... Some of the biggest dinosaurs. Well, I mean, I was paraphrasing that stuff, but yeah. The hope is that there's a lot of sauropod eggs and we can find out more about their development stages. And yes, the largest, some of the largest dinosaurs do come from that area. So I wonder what was eating them. Dinosaurs. You think it was dinosaurs and not like mammals or crocodilians or something? Oh, that's a good point. Pterosaurs. Could be anything. Marine reptiles beaching themselves to get at those eggs? Mm, I don't know about that. That's probably less likely. Yeah. Speaking of Patagonia, there was another discovery down in Argentina, and this was published in Geological Magazine. So they found some more tracks there, specifically tridactyl prints from the early Jurassic. The smallest is about 13 by 10 centimeters or about 5 by 4 inches, And the largest was about 19 by 13 centimeters, or about 7 by 5 inches. And if you're familiar with some of the other dinosaur tracks we've talked about, some of those were up to like 5 feet. (laughs) These are actually pretty small, and they differ from the likely theropod Eubrontes tracks that we've talked about in places like Connecticut, where they're big tridactyl prints bigger tridactyl prints that look like they're from something like a Dilophosaurus. And the authors think that this is likely an Ornithischian. And specifically, they think it might be Anomopus, 
which is the name of a type of print that's been seen in North America, Australia, Europe, Asia, and possibly Africa. Is it Mopey? I don't know. I don't even know if I was really saying that right. (laughs) But that is evidence for dinosaurs kind of roaming freely between all the modern continents into the early Jurassic. So there's kind of a question of when places like South America got isolated specifically. So this is pretty good evidence that at least in the early Jurassic, they could still roam around pretty easily since we're seeing really similar prints all over the world. And next, there's a really funny article that was published in Cretaceous Research titled Reuniting the Headhunted Carithosaurus Excavatus Holotype Skull with its Dentary and Postcranium. <laughs> and I like that they described it as headhunted and they even put that in quotes. <laughs> so it's been about two years since Carithosaurus was our dinosaur of the day. It's a big hadrosaur with a little crest on its head that looks kind of like a helmet. And that's where the name comes from. It means helmet, basically. And it was discovered back in 1914 by Barnum Brown, the original Corythosaurus. That was a species known as Corythosaurus cassowarius. And it was remarkably complete, including skin impressions and, you know, basically all the bones that you could possibly want to see. It had the teeth, all the limbs. It looks really amazing. On the other hand, this holotype of Corythosaurus excavatus was not quite so great. So it was found in 1920, but all they recovered was the upper part of the skull. It didn't even have the jaw attached to it. But then in 1992, they found a headless skeleton and a jaw near the headless skeleton, and they dug it up in 2012 and realized that it's likely the rest of the holotype. Reunited. (laughs) You're not going to finish that? (laughs) No, that's all I needed. Okay. So some consider this Corythosaurus excavatus to be a synonym of Corythosaurus cassowarius, but that wasn't discussed at all in this paper. And there are at least seven other species that aren't really talked about much anymore. So kind of interesting. I don't know if now seeing the rest of this animal, they'll be able to find some more diagnostic features and identify it as its own species and kind of reestablish it as, you know, its own thing rather than just a synonym for the other kind of Corythosaurus. But we'll have to see. As a fun side note, Dave Trexler, who we talked to a while back from the Two Medicine Dinosaur Center, was the one who found the quarry leading to the discovery. And it was kind of fun when we were talking to them Corey, another paleontologist at the museum, was talking about how good Dave is at finding places where there's going to be dinosaur fossils. (laughs) And it turns out he is, because he did. (laughs) Next up is an article that was published in Nature, and it's all about a recent dinosaur ancestor. This one's called Teleocrater radnus, and the name means slender closed bowl. What? Yeah, it's very catchy. So the closed bowl is because it has a closed acetabulum and that's the hip socket where the joint of that ball of the femur goes in Hmm. and then slender is because it's kind of (laughs) slender compared to other reptiles at the time so they believe that it's from the middle triassic about 247 to 241 million years ago and it's part of a new group that the authors are calling aphanosauria And it really looks like a transition from a sprawled reptile to an upright kind of posture reptile. 
and it's really long and low to the ground, but it's not resting on the ground. You know, it's got legs kind of like the length of a dog leg or so, you know, where it's, it's still close to the ground, but it's not really like a Komodo dragon or something where it's laying on it. And they draw it as having the tip of its tail dragging on the ground because it has a really long tail, like kind of like crocodile sort of proportion of tail. And then they only found one tooth from the animal. It's lucky that they found one because it tells you a lot about what they ate. And it is serrated. So they determined that it's, quote, long-necked, non-cursorial, and carnivorous. And so more like stem archosaurs and pseudosuchians than later avimeditarsalians, end quote. So pseudosuchians, which is a really fun word to say, means false crocodiles. And they kind of have a similar body plan to what I was describing. They have a little bit longer legs than crocodiles and they're kind of upright, but they still have the long tail and they basically look like a crocodile, but more upright and off the ground. Weird. Yeah. And then avimeditarsalians include pterosaurs and dinosaurs. And it's technically animals that are closer related to birds than to crocodiles, basically, or crocodilomorphs. So the thing that really sets this apart from those false crocodiles is that it has that long neck and kind of a smaller head. It doesn't have that big crocodile-looking head. And they also say that, quote, several early dinosauromorphs that were previously used as models to understand dinosaur origins may represent specialized forms rather than ancestral avimeditarsalian morphology, end quote. So basically, things like Nyasasaurus or some of these other really old dinosaur-looking things that we've thought of as kind of the earliest dinosaurs might be a little bit too differentiated. You know, they're not really like the common ancestor. They're more like little early offshoots because it's so hard to figure out which one's the common ancestor and which one's just an old but different dinosaur that kind of is going off its own way. So pretty interesting. And it's giving us a little more of a clear picture about, you know, what these early dinosaurs might have looked like and when they might have evolved. Definitely. I just want to give a quick shout out to Chris. Thank you, Chris, who shared one of the links to this research with us on Twitter. And next, there were four new specimens of Anchiornis huxleyi that were found in northeastern China, and they were published in the American Museum of Natural History Research Library. So if you don't remember, Anchiornis huxleyi is a tiny bird-like dinosaur, sort of like a mini Archaeopteryx. You know, it's also from the Jurassic. It's one of the first dinosaurs we figured out the coloration on because there were preserved pigment-creating melanosomes on fossilized feather remains. And we figured out that it was mostly black and orangutan orange and then possibly little bits of white. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's really cool looking. And... These new specimens give even more detail on a few other things. Some of them have really amazingly preserved teeth that are super tiny and really sharp looking. They have like these really high resolution images in the paper. When I kind of zoomed in on it to use the scale bar and see how big the teeth are, they're about one millimeter long, at least the part that sticks out of the mouth, not including the root. So really small, but they look just like a lot of other carnivorous dinosaur teeth. They have that same kind of curved shape and it looks like they might be a little bit serrated and they're definitely very sharp. So just like a mini little monster. <laughs> <laughs> they also have 
kind of dromaeosaur looking claws. They're about one centimeter long, but they don't have that really cool raptor curved claw on the second toe. A couple of them also have really beautifully preserved feather impressions, especially on BMNHCPH804. I think it looks really amazing. Another name that rolls off the tongue. I was going to say, yeah, we can <laughs> learn a lot from that name. <laughs> yeah. Well, that way you can look it up on your own if you're interested. True, true. Yeah, I think they've found quite a few Anchiornis in the past. I know there's a museum in China that's just jammed full of preserved feathered dinosaurs, but it's always good to find more. And a quick follow-up from last week, thanks to Luke for sharing a video with us about Moabasaurus utahensis on Patreon. And in this link, there is an interview with Brooks Britt, the lead author on the paper describing Moabasaurus. And he shows off one of the dinosaurs humerus and a brain case. And he describes the brain as small and about the size of a Chinese egg roll. Mm. <laughs> Don't eat dinosaur brains <laughs> or, or preserved dinosaur brain. What if case we prepare case. it like an egg roll? I don't think rock preserve, <laughs> prepares very well. Probably not. He also says that there were hundreds or thousands of animals that died in a massive drought. And then the ones that survived were the ones that trampled over the bones. We talked about how a lot of them broke. And he says about 3% of the bones were complete, meaning, you know, not destroyed to the point where you could... <laughs> Put them back together. That's not much. Yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe he meant like complete and it didn't require any kind of gluing back together. I'm not really sure. But the Moabasaurus is now mounted at BYU's Museum of Paleontology in Provo, Utah. And that's on our dinosaur map. So you can find it if you want to visit. And then tell us about it. Yep. It looks really cool. It looks a lot like a small Camarasaurus to me. <laughs> I like when dinosaurs are described as small versions. Yeah, even though I guess small is maybe not the best word to describe it because I think it's still like 20 or 30 feet long. But Oh, yeah, that's different. <laughs> it's no Anky Ornus. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of new exhibits, Winton, Queensland in Australia has a new permanent open-air dinosaur exhibit called Dinosaur Canyon. And this sounds pretty cool. It's part of the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum and it has a 300 meter floating concrete walkway that apparently cost $1.3 million and three years to build. The founder and chairman is David Elliott, who found his first dinosaur bone back in 1999 and has spent the last 10 years working on the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum. This new walkway takes people past five galleries with bronze life-size replicas of dinosaurs that have been found in the region and lived in the Cretaceous. Awesome. There's so much cool dinosaur museum stuff happening in Australia. I know. I There's so many of these like areas with hundreds of lifelike dinosaur sculptures and I just want to walk among them. I guess so. It'd be nice if they were walking too. You really get a feel for it. Yeah. Maybe someday that'll happen. Yeah. I feel like Japan will do that first. They've <laughs> already got some pretty good animatronics going in some of their museums. True. And in their hotels. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> More museum news, the University of South Carolina recently received an oviraptor egg as a gift. The egg was found in Mongolia and was donated by Dr. Carol Jansen, a material scientist and geochemist at the Savannah River National Laboratory, and she donated it to the Ruth Patrick Center of USC. The egg will be on display in the next month or so. It's pretty cool. Yeah. 
You're not going to find any dinosaur eggs in South Carolina, probably. So it's good <laughs> to get them from Mongolia. Yes. <laughs> the Phoenix Zoo in Arizona will have a new exhibit this fall called Dinosaurs in the Desert. The exhibit's going to have 23 animatronic dinosaurs, and visitors will be able to do a dig and take photos with a pachyrhinosaurus. The exhibit opens on October 6th and will cost $5 per person, and the zoo is also having a stegosaurus coloring contest, where two winners will have their design painted on a mother and baby stegosaurus, <laughs> and that will be in the exhibit. And we'll post a link. The contest ends July 22nd, so you've got plenty of time. It's basically a coloring sheet of a stegosaurus, and then you design it. Cool. That reminds me of some of those things where they, like in Maine, had all the moose that had the paintings on them. Mm -hmm. and exactly. Yeah, they had the Snoopies in Minnesota and wolves in North Carolina. They had a lot of them. I've seen cows. Cows, that's I a cool one. saw cows in Copenhagen. Huh, cool. Someone should do it with dinosaurs. Yeah. I feel like Canada. Canada is the one that would do it. Maybe Australia. Yeah. Would they all be the same dinosaur or would they be different dinosaurs? They're usually all the same, right? Yeah. So you'd have to pick one type. Yeah, I suppose. That'd be hard to pick. Yeah. I guess you could do like Triceratops in Wyoming or T-Rex in something Montana like that. I something. mean, a Stegosaurus, that's not a bad one. Yeah. That'd be a good one. Yeah. You do cool stuff on their plates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> in honor of National Park Week, all national parks, including Dinosaur National Monument, waived their fees this past weekend. There was also a special National Junior Ranger Day from 10 a.m. to noon on Saturday with special activities in and around the quarry exhibit hall, which sounds like a pretty good weekend. Yeah. Good way to spend Earth Day. I just want to give a quick update about the potential California state dinosaur, Augustine Alophis. So Augustine Alophis has its own Twitter account now, and the handle is at Augustine Alophis, and joined in March 2017. And if you read the bio, it says, Native Californian, Los Angeles resident, older than Jerry Brown, barely, vegetarian, and firm believer in science. It's a pretty good account to follow for the latest updates on whether or not this dinosaur becomes the official state dinosaur for California. It seems like it probably will. I think all the votes so far have been unanimous. Mm -hmm. So I don't know who would be opposed. <laughs> yeah, but if you want to hear whatever twists or whatever votes are going up next. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Be the first to know when it's official. Yeah. Going back to Stegosaurus, Smithsonian Mag posted about a Stegosaurus from World War One. I. I love hearing about these stories. I, I know dinosaurs are pretty pervasive in the media, but... There's so many stories that we haven't even touched on. I didn't even know about this one until recently. But anyway, this Stegosaurus, his name was Jingo, and he was a papier-mâché mascot featured in the April 1st, 1916 issue of the magazine The Survey. And Jingo was a symbol for people who were opposed to the U.S. entering World War I. The Anti-Preparedness Committee created the Stegosaurus and gave him the slogan, All Armor Plate, No Brains, mm. to oppose people who wanted to go to trench warfare instead of being diplomatic, since you know, Stegosaurus had a small brain. And the name Jingo references Jingoism, which is a form of extreme patriotism in the form of warlike foreign policy. Anti-war activists liked Jingo, the Stegosaurus, but people who supported the war thought that it was just this stupid public stunt. And there's one paleontologist, W.D. Matthew, from the American Museum of Natural History, who was upset about this because he said that all dinosaurs became extinct, even the ones with armor, speed, or wits. Very true. Yeah. 
And then once America entered World War I, Jingo the Stegosaurus went away. According to the article, quote, nearly one year after Jingo made his public debut, the United States declared war on Germany and new laws such as the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918 restricted the free speech of Americans. To speak out against the war was treasonous and so Jingo was forced into extinction, end quote. Oh, no. But um, he was already extinct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. He lasted a lot shorter run than the real stegosaurus like one year versus a couple million yeah that's true (laughs) it's also kind of weird because stegosaurus didn't go extinct because of you know going to war aggressively or something or having small brains yeah it just got out competed really early in the dinosaur you know in the mesozoic or it just morphed into something else yeah basically Speaking of dinosaurs in the media, we've got more Jurassic World 2 updates. In addition to Rexy coming back, we mentioned Rexy the T-Rex last week. Uh, Apparently the Venomous, which we know was not Venomous in real life. (laughs) Well, we don't really know. There's no evidence that it was Venomous. Correct. Yeah. The Dilophosaurus, of course, will also make an appearance in the movie. And there's an egg teaser that came out recently. So... Colin Trevorrow tweeted a photo of seven dinosaur eggs in an incubator on Easter Sunday, and it looks similar to the scene in Jurassic Park where a velociraptor hatches from an egg. There's no other details, but probably has something to do with Dr. Henry Wu, or at least that's what people are speculating. Yep, he was the one pulling them out in the first movie. Mm-hmm. We've also got more stories about people doing silly antics in inflatable T-Rex costumes. I feel like that comes up about as often as Jurassic World 2 news. It does. <laughs> But that's okay. I like both of those. So this week we saw videos of Ralph the Rex. There's a guy in Ralph the Rex T-Rex costumes who sells costumes, and he posted videos of himself trying to do golf in his costume. So he has trouble fitting into a golf cart, (laughs) but manages to hit a ball that another T-Rex is holding in its mouth that this T-Rex is laying on the ground. They also, I think they had something where they were, I don't know how to describe it, but it looked like almost wakeboarding with a golf cart, but on the sand and not with a wakeboard, obviously, some kind of board. Hmm. It's pretty entertaining. There's also uh, another video of a mom who walked her son to school in Florida in a T-Rex costume because her son thought it'd be funny. That's pretty pretty cool of her. So the video shows the two walking, and it looks like they're having a good time. The mom, Leslie Eggenberger, said, quote, My seven- and eight-year-old boys love watching me wear the T-Rex outfit. I want to teach them to not care what people think about them, to just be brave and do whatever you want to do. Oh, the mom was in the costume, not the kid. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) And it's because the kid wanted her to. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty awesome, mom. Yeah, that'd be fun. And last, thanks to Anna, who shared this one with us via Facebook, Kids Funwares sells Triceratoco, a plastic Triceratops taco holder (laughs) that can carry two tacos at a time on its back. It costs about $12, and it looks like a fun way to eat. That is super weird. So I guess they have to be hard shell tacos? Yes, they do. That's not the best kind of taco. You might be able to, well, no, it'd be just kind of stuffing it in. So how does it hold? Is there like a groove in its back or something? It's two holes in its back that are taco shaped. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Reminds me of some of the wine holders that are kind of similar. Yeah. I like wine better than hard shell tacos though. Yeah, I think me too. But still looks fun.
This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Australovenator, which was a request from... Thigh Potato via YouTube and John via Facebook, so thanks. It was a megaraptor and theropod that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Australia, in Queensland, and its name means Southern Hunter. The type species is Australovenator wintonensis, and the species name refers to the township of Winton. It was found near there. It was described in 2009 by Scott Hucknall and team. There's only one known specimen nicknamed Banjo after Banjo Patterson, an Australian bush poet, journalist, and author. And I had to look this up. Bush poetry is a style that depicts the Australian bush, which is any sparsely inhabited region in Australia, which Banjo and others revered as a source of national ideals. Banjo, the... The bush poet. Not the dinosaur. Maybe the dinosaur. Maybe the dinosaur (laughs) really cared about Australian ideals back before Australia was a thing. Yeah, sure. It was sort of a thing. (laughs) Wait, what? We're in the Cretaceous? Yeah. Australia was its own thing then, depending (laughs) on what part of the Cretaceous. (laughs) Anyway, Banjo the Australovenator was found with Diamantinosaurus, a sauropod, at the Matilda site in Australia. Other animals that lived at the same time in the same place include fish, turtles, crocodilians, insects, pterosaurs, and chylosaurians, hypsilophodonts, sauropods, such as Diamantinosaurus and Winton on a Titan, and plants in the area included ferns, ginkgos, and angiosperms. 
Australovenator is the most complete skeleton found in Australia of a carnivorous dinosaur that lived in the Cretaceous. Cool. And Scott Hocknell called it the cheetah of its time. Oh. It was a lightweight predator. The holotype includes a left dentary, teeth, partial forelimbs and hindlimbs, a partial right ilium, ribs, and gastralia. Australovenator was about 6.6 feet or 2 meters tall and 20 feet or 6 meters long and weighed between kind of a big range, 1,100 to 2,200 pounds or 500 to 1,000 kilograms. It had recurved serrated teeth and it was lightweight, again, and fast, so it could run down its prey. It has some similarities with Fuquiraptor and Megaraptor. And Megaraptors in general were the dominant carnivorous dinosaurs in Australia in the mid-Cretaceous. You can see Australovenator at the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum of Natural History. Pops up again. Yep. Seems like a good place to go. It does. And our fun fact of the day is that about 550 million years ago, back in the pre-Cambrian, really towards the end of it, the bilaterian animals evolved. And the common feature in this clade is that almost every animal has a distinct head and are bilaterally symmetric. And that means that the right half of the animal is a mirror image of the left half. So this is different than the group of radially symmetric animals that dominated before bilaterally symmetric animals, like jellyfish and adult starfish. You know, you imagine they're radially symmetric like a wheel, you know, they all are symmetric from a center point rather than down a center line. So early bilaterians included things like worms, but shortly after that, chordates and then vertebrates evolved, and that included fish, dinosaurs, and eventually humans. So one place that you can see reference to this bilaterally symmetric effect in paleontology is with the use of the word postcranial, and it literally means after the head. So since almost all bilaterians, which are mostly what fossilize, because you know vertebrates fossilize better than things that are made out of cartilage and other stuff, and most of them have heads, it's an easy way to refer to the rest of the animal because you can't really just say the body because then what about the limbs and all that kind of stuff. So it really just gets separated into the head and then the not head <laughs> of the animal. And one of the most interesting things about being bilaterally symmetric is that when we find a dinosaur, since dinosaurs are bilaterally symmetric, you technically only have to find half of the animal to know exactly what it looked like. Because if you find exactly the right half of the animal, you can just take the mirror image of that and you know what the left half looks like. Which is really handy since in paleontology we rarely get a 100% complete fossil. You can make these inferences if you just find one arm or one leg, you know what the other one looked like. You can kind of take some casts and some artistry and mirror image it and voila, <laughs> you've got a more complete dinosaur. Good to know. Yep. I feel like that was a the more you know kind of moment. <laughs> <laughs> I like being bilaterally symmetric. Yeah. Symmetry looks nice. Yeah. Although we went to the Exploratorium once in San Francisco and they had that test where you could see in a mirror, but instead of it being flipped, it was the way other people see your face. Oh, yeah. And then you look a little bit different because it's not perfectly symmetric. Yeah. Unless you're like really pretty and you're very symmetric, then you don't look that different in that mirror. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's interesting that that's, a, that's what defines pretty or whatever. Yeah, it is one of them, being symmetric. <laughs> anyway, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. If you want to join our growing community, 
get a shout out on our podcast, join the other stegosaurs, then check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I know dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.